HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street, a co-working building in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Need a professional place to work from? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're diving straight no chaser into the delicious crossover of the food and jazz worlds. And I think that sense of nostalgia is what makes it hard to do New Orleans food well because people just have these memories of these dishes. Certainly people from New Orleans, like, you're never going to make, you know, a gumbo as good as their mother or grandmother made, right? Comfort food, you got to get your hands dirty and the jazz is musicians. It's like it all goes together very well, you know? Check out Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and we're coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, December 4th, 2019. This is the 236th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a real dynamo. She's a restaurateur, entrepreneur, and publicist, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to know that in order to make money, you need to spend money. Yes, we must invest, but let's be smart about it. Let's Do our research before putting our dollars down and truly understand what and why we are investing before we commit. Smart investments take due diligence, so that means doing our homework first. And if we play it right, profitable results will come, perhaps twofold or more. That's my tip today. Now, I'm really thrilled to have my guest here with me in the studio. It is Jen Pelka, the founder and CEO of The Riddler, the popular all-women-funded champagne bar with locations in San Francisco and New York. 
Jen is also the founder of Magnum PR, a leading restaurant PR agency in San Francisco. Jen's career in restaurants began at Chef Danielle Ballou's iconic New York restaurant, Danielle, where she served for five years across a broad range of roles. She has been named Forbes 30 Under 30 for Food & Wine, Details Digital Maverick, and a Cherry Bomb It Girl. And I could go on and on, but let's talk. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. Thanks so much, Sherry. I'm 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 so excited to have you here. I I'm your career is uh pretty um I mean amazing doesn't doesn't cut it. It's, I'm like fascinated by how you've built this career on both coasts. Oh, thank <laughs> you. And we've known each other for so long. Yeah. I was trying to think this morning about where we first met and we I'm sure we've known each other for at least a decade. Yeah, I I'm not exactly sure, but I do recall going to Tumblr. Oh yeah, at your offices yeah. and and having a presentation uh, that you you that you you showed me what you guys were doing. Yeah, what is it all about? Tumblr? Who knows? Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I do recall that, but that was um, I don't know how many years ago. That, that was, was probably a dozen years ago. Yeah, it was at least seven. Okay. Yeah. So before Tumblr, <laughs> sure, yeah. Let's let's go back a little bit uh, to you know growing up. What did what career wise did you did you think you wanted to get in the food beverage space? Or? Well, I came from a family that was really into restaurants um, and also cooking at home. Um, my parents were really really big into entertaining. They still are. My dad is a really great cook. He's very skilled on the barbecue, um, and my mom's an incredible. Um, baker. She's the kind of person who makes like these beautiful multi-tiered cakes with fondant and like really, really beautiful presentation. And so um, entertaining and having guests over to our house is always a huge part of our family culture. Um, and is something that I still love so much to this day. It's one of my one of my biggest hobbies. Um, my dad also comes from a restaurant family. His parents um, owned diners and delis when he was growing up. And then my grandfather, my dad's father, um, was in his last 20 years before he passed away, he was the chef of the Ocean County, New Jersey jail. Oh, wow. Yeah, really wild. And um, he had a lot of stories. Uh, and so they really instilled in me like a love of restaurants and hospitality. Um, but growing up, um, I, I didn't really think about restaurants or food as, as a career that I was looking at going into. I was actually really into... I was on the debate team. I was very, very into science fair, <laughs> you know, all these kinds of things. And I, uh, you know, I went to college and um, studied philosophy of science and history of science, totally unrelated to anything I do now. Um, but when I graduated from school, I wanted to move to San Francisco and open a restaurant. And my parents said, no way, don't be crazy. <laughs> and so I instead moved to New York um, and I worked at a hedge fund and, um, I was falling in love with restaurants more and more, and especially at the time, you know, this was before Top Chef. This was, um, yeah, before <laughs> like a big real restaurant revolution. And I started falling in love with um, the idea of going out to restaurants and had seen chefs in their whites for the first time in a dining room, and um, was really fortunate to meet the sous chef of restaurant Danielle um, at a bar at Schiller's. Wow. Uh, yeah. It was, it I, I was at Schiller's a couple nights a week back then. <laughs> and uh, there was a guy down the bar who was reading a book about um, chefs. And I said, oh, excuse me, are you a chef? We started chatting. And it turns out that he was a sous chef at Danielle. And I had heard that you could stage in restaurants. And so I asked if I could come in. And he said, 
give me a call. So I called him later in the week, and he said, yeah, yeah, come in on Saturday. Black pants, black shoes, white shirt, bring your knives. That was, was it. Like, yep, that was it. So that was my, my entrance into the restaurant world. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And yeah. then I, you stayed with Danielle for a, Yeah, so for I, I staged in the kitchen for about a year and a half on Saturdays. So I still had my full-time job, uh, but I would go in on the weekends, um, and I worked almost every position on the line, um, which is really, really incredible. And eventually um, I left for a short period of time, and then I sort of came back to Danielle and lobbied him to become his research assistant, which was not really a job that existed. But um, I I ended up working with him you know, in the in the skybox. Have you ever been to the skybox? Do you know? About I've it? I've seen the skybox. I've yeah. been up there. I haven't had a meal there, and it's it's on my list. Oh yeah, it's a it's a real bucket list dinner. That's yeah. for sure. So the skybox is this tiny little box, which is also Danielle's office. Um, and there are three computers. There's Danielle and two assistants who have computers up there. And then there's a tiny little conference room, um, which in the evenings guests can purchase, um, the opportunity to dine there for a party of four. But, um, if you're one of the two assistants who gets to work next to Danielle, um, you're very much in his orbit at all times. And, um, it's a very energetic orbit. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. I mean, he, he's been on my show and yeah, I, sure. I know him from, um, a lot of, actually a lot of my memories of him are, uh, visually of him on top of a bar toasting at the end of the James Beard Awards or, you know, Absolutely. something he's that he's, he's that yeah. guy. So Sabering I bring champagne yeah. or like making everybody perfect scrambled eggs with truffles at the end of the night. He is that guy. And he does seem like he has endless energy. <laughs> he does. Uh, so it must, yeah, I think working for him, you must have endless en- energy too to to keep up. I definitely, um, I feel incredibly fortunate to have worked with him. And I learned a tremendous amount from him that I think anybody I know who has worked within um, Dynex, the Danielle's Restaurant Group, yeah. has a really similar level of generosity, I think, towards their guests as well as their team members. Um, you know, I, I really, um, lavish our guests with a lot of extras, (laughs) probably, probably beyond what is necessary, but I like to make people feel really welcome. And that's something that I really learned from him that very much to your opening tip, you got to spend money to make money. I believe that's true. Yeah. Thanks. I, I, yeah, I don't, I, I thought it would fit in a sense into this show with knowing what you, with your with the Riddler, which we'll get to, and and investing and all of that, but it's one of those tips that yeah, you gotta you gotta spend spend to to make. You do. <laughs> I say that phrase all the time. <laughs> cool. I'm glad it fits. Yeah. So so after Danielle, take us through a little like how in the event you didn't give up on the dream of having your own no, no restaurant I, or bar in San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. So um, when I was working at Danielle, I also had a little side gig as a personal chef. So I did that for a while and was cooking um, like tasting menus in people's homes, just private homes, which was really, really fun. Um, and then eventually Danielle and Thomas Keller took over the Boku's Door, the culinary competition. Right. And I was the competition director for the first year and a half, oh, right. uh, which is really cool. It was an incredible experience to get to work um, with both Danielle and Thomas, who are very, very different, um, and to learn really, really just by seeing what it's like for restaurant operators at that level, how they work. Um, and... 
Then I left. I started a blog called Gastronomista, which was about food and women, oh, right. and um, it's still around. My my dear friend Emily Arden Wells still runs it to this day. Um, and I did uh, do some fundraising for a restaurant project when I was probably about twenty five, uh, called French Gray, and we. Only got one check, and we needed a lot more. So that that project never ended up taking flight. Uh, but in retrospect, I'm so glad it didn't uh, because I really had no idea what I was doing at that point. <laughs> um, so if I had opened a little French restaurant in the Lower East Side, um, it probably would not still be here today. So, But, you know, I've always been really entrepreneurial. I, I often have a lot of projects in the works, proposals that I'm working on, things that I'm thinking about, big ideas. Um, and now... Fast forward 10 or 15 years later, um, I opened the Riddler in San Francisco in January of 2017, 2017. Yeah, man, what year is it now? 2020, we're almost there. Uh, but yeah, so I opened the Riddler in San Francisco about three years ago, and we just opened our second location in the West Village um, a little bit less than two months ago. It's amazing. So what, so people not familiar with the Riddler, what, what, what inspired you to create its concept and and what is its concept? Yeah, so the concept is that we're a champagne bar. Um, we have over 150 champagnes by the bottle, and we always have at least a dozen champagnes by the glass. And what we really focus on is um, helping people to realize that they can drink champagne any day of the week, uh, any week of the year, and <laughs> multiple times a week at that, and that there's such a broad spectrum of of styles of champagnes and champagnes that you can drink with all different kinds of food uh, for all different moments. I mean, I think champagne is the kind of thing that you really can and should drink for breakfast. You can and should drink it at dinner. And um, it's really fun for us because we get to open all of these really incredible wines, wines that take five or six years to make um, and share them with the world. So the so as I said, the Riddler, it's, we're a champagne bar. Our two different locations are um, in many ways very similar, in some ways quite different. Um, our menu in San Francisco is really, really focused around our champagnes. Then we've got um, a handful of snacks that are really delicious that you can enjoy with them. And then here, um, we knew that we wanted to have um, a full kitchen. So here we have great burger. Uh, we have a full raw bar, so oyster, shrimp cocktail, king crab, all those all those goodies. Um, and then we've also got sort of more luxurious and, and fairly actually kind of, I would say refined, um, dishes like white truffle risotto or like a beautiful seared halibut with chanterelles and a brown butter sauce. So I'm getting so know. hungry. Yeah. <laughs> but I really like in thinking about the menu and in working with our chefs and yeah. figuring out what we want to put on the menu, we always talk about what do we want to eat with champagne. And, um, they're either, for me, like kind of refined, really elegant delicacies like caviar or a really beautiful um, fish dish, or it's things like a burger. You know, in either case, they have to be delicious. Yes, and I've I've been to the Riddler here, and I but I haven't I did not eat, so now I'm coming well, I'm coming back. Yeah, now's the time. <laughs> <laughs> I popped in just to check out because it's a you know fairly new opening. And yeah. It was, very happening. It's beautiful. Oh, thanks. Um, and I, I can't wait to go back. And seriously, I'm like, yeah, it like, sounds like a good dinner right now. Everything oh, you just yeah. named. Definitely. <laughs> so before we take a break, let's 
play back the question I have from my last guest for you. Uh, it was on episode 235 I had on Ruth Reichel, the legendary food writer and editor and former restaurant critic at the LA Times and the New York Times and the former editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine. So here's her question. I worked with Jen in, like 10 years ago. Uh, we were both at Guilt Taste. She is a remarkable person with... Um, more energy than anybody I've ever met and someone I would bet on her on anything she did I would follow her anywhere and my question for her is why when she started the word I guess I'm supposed to ask this why when you started the Riddler (laughs) uh, why did you decide that you only wanted women investors oh that Ruth brings Uh, a tear to my eye (laughs) I mean, when she's, that's quite, quite something to hear from Ruth and says, says a lot. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, Right back at you, Ruth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, great question. Um, When I decided to open the Riddler, I started putting together a list of, of people who I thought um, might have some money. And by some money, I mean like $5,000 or more. And I put together this huge spreadsheet of people who were really important to me, people who I wanted to have around me, people who I thought could be an important part of our community. And that list was almost completely women. And then I had a bit of a light bulb moment, which was just like, what if we make this only funded by women? Um, There aren't a ton of opportunities out there for women to invest on a cap table that's only made up of women. And um, I'm so glad that I made the decision that I did because it's something that has drawn such a huge community of people towards us who want to be a part of of that. And um, it's really cool. We work with our investors all the time um, to host events and we welcome them into the Riddler for reservations. We have one of our investors coming in tonight to the Riddler who is like such a dear friend and advisor to me. And it's an incredible community of people who range in age from their 20s up to their 80s. And they're all women. Almost all of them are completely self-made and they all love champagne. And they... um, they want to be part of something that's bigger than them. In almost all cases, they haven't invested in other restaurants before. And I know that one of the biggest reasons that they're investing is that they want to be a part of a larger community of women and an organization that really supports women. We put a huge focus on working with female artisans, uh, with women winemakers, and we're a place where I think it's um, a really great place to be a woman on our team. You know, we, we have... Uh, Almost all of our leadership team is made up of women, and that's a huge part of who we are. And so it's been one of the best decisions I've ever made, and I, I'm, I'm very proud, and I'm obviously extremely grateful to have Ruth as one of the women in that community. Amazing. Well said. Let's take a break on that happy, fabulous note, and <laughs> we'll come back and we'll talk more with Jen. So stay with us. This is Only Industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, that provides offices, co-working, event spaces, and a brand new podcast recording room. Have you been dreaming of starting your very own podcast in Brooklyn? You can now rent space in 100 Bogart's custom-built podcast room to record interviews, voiceover, and commentary. The room is fitted out with two microphones, mixing board, and a MacBook Pro running Pro Tools. You can rent the space by the hour, and a rental of an hour or more includes a 100 Bogart co-working pass, 
That means complimentary coffee, tea, and access to your own desk for the rest of the day. So what are you waiting for? Get started on your next audio project. 100 Bogart has the space and amenities you need to kickstart your podcast. Learn more at 100bogart.com or call their team at 718-362-3539. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jen Pelka. She's the founder and CEO of The Riddler with locations in San Francisco and New York City. And she's the founder of Magnum PR, a restaurant PR agency. And let's talk about that a bit because sure. that's, I, I mean, you you founded, uh, it's, it's like another, a whole other company. And yeah, restaurant PR, and you and it, your company's based in in San Francisco. In San Francisco, okay. yeah. So I started Magnum before I opened um, the San Francisco location of the Riddler, and it started really a little bit on a whim. Um, I had been working at Open Table. I was heading up restaurant marketing for them, so focusing on the top tier of restaurants and helping them to understand the value of Open Table doing a lot of events and partnerships. We did a lot of work with the press as well, and. Um, I left there eventually and went to a startup and I was at a startup for maybe two months and I realized quickly it was not the right place for me. And so, um, my, my mother-in-law actually, she said, Jen, I think it's time for you to hang your own shingle. (laughs) Yeah, you know, you're right. So, um, I had been doing, uh, unofficially had been doing my husband's PR at the time. He was, I think, my boyfriend. Um, but he has now five Greek restaurants in San Francisco called Suvla. And um, they're really cool, really remarkable places that have really delicious food. And uh, they're very editorial in a lot of ways. And um, I had just been reaching out to friends in the New York restaurant media scene in particular to let them know uh, what Suvla was up to. And we got a lot of really great early traction. Um, Melissa Clark did a really great recipe feature about um, Suvla's feta brined whole roasted chicken. Um, Bon Appetit featured them as the number one food trend of the year in, I think, 2016, 2015. Um, We did... um, some really great coverage in food and wine. We just got like a lot of really great early placement. And that was all just me reaching out to people who I knew from my time in New York. And um, when I thought about going off on my own, I was like, oh, Charles, would you be my actual PR client? And I was really lucky. He said, yeah, I'll I'll pay you for six months up front. Um, He got a pretty good rate, but also he was was really (laughs) truly, he was like my seed capital and um, started what was not an agency. It was just me. Um, but I put together a little website and got it out into the world. He came up with the name Magnum PR. Uh, oh, really? Very clever. And he's, he's been, on, he came on my show. You got yes. that press placement too. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere or another. No, no, no. Yeah. It, it was great. I, it was great having him on and, and yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. Oh, thanks. Me too. Yeah. And he's a big fan of yours. <laughs> yeah. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, uh, so, oh yeah. So, so your first client. <laughs> so he's my first client. And then we just had friends who were in the restaurant community in San Francisco who were working on restaurant openings, um, I think my second client was Brandon Jew, who was opening Mr. Jew's. Yeah. And then Aaron London at Al's Place, and then Evan and Sarah Rich at Rich Table, and Murad, 
and Tracy Desjardins and just like people we knew. Um, and, you know, coming at it from the perspective of, you know, he's a restaurant operator. These are people who are like friendly with. There's obviously a lot of trust that's already existing there. And because I had spent so long in New York, like 10 plus years, um, and had worked with the media in a lot of different ways in the past, I had a really great network of, of, of editors here um, in the city. And something that's like not very typical for people in San Francisco. The media market in San Francisco is tiny. There are a handful of publications. There's Eater, there's Sunset right. Magazine, 7 by 7 but it's nothing like the media market in New York. And so I had um, just a, a really great community of people I could immediately reach out to. And so I had some great early traction with the clients that we started working with at first and then I needed an intern and then we needed an assistant and then et cetera, et cetera. And so at the height of the company, we were a team of, I think, 11. And we were probably at the time working with about 30 clients. Um, wow. Yeah, big team. Uh, well, because yeah. as as a restaurant PR person, and I started on my own in 2003, mm-hmm. um, I, and I just chose not to grow into a big yeah. company. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's... that's uh, incredible to grow so so fast yeah we were <laughs> I think within like two or three years that big yeah and um yeah we had an office like the whole thing I mean it was a real big deal <laughs> in San Francisco but did yeah. you all open a branch in New York no nope, no nope. okay we've never we've only focused on Bay Area brands um we've primarily focused on Bay Area and specifically San Francisco restaurants and our focus was you know I always think it's important to define what you want to be the first, the best, or the only at. And we wanted to be the best restaurant PR agency in San Francisco. And um, for me, that was really all about getting the best clients, having the best team, and getting the best media placements. And so that was our focus. I think there's great power in having a laser focus on a particular region or a very specific category. So we didn't take on CPG or hotels or wine, there's like a lot of opportunities. Wine, we really wanted to focus on San Francisco restaurants because we have a great community of, of editors who look to us as like tastemakers in the Bay Area, and um, yeah, so that's that's what we focused on. The only the only um, restaurants that we would work with that were not San Francisco born and bred would be launches for really important brands like we did um, Sweet Green and Shake Shack when they came to San Francisco. Because yeah, those are brands obviously that because we, we want to help. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear <laughs> yeah. you on that. Yeah. So are you, where are you at now with the company? So now the company is quite a bit smaller. We've really streamlined. Um, and we continue to focus on highlighting San Francisco born and bred restaurant concepts. We still work with Shake Shack. Uh, we love them. They're amazing. We're really excited for them for their upcoming opening in the uh, beginning of 2020. Um, they have two new locations in the Bay Area, but their first San Francisco locations coming in the beginning of next year. Um, and we work with a really, really great group of restaurants that we love and we believe in. Uh, Murad just opened a new restaurant called Aziza, uh, which is the reboot of the original Aziza. It's in the same space. And Murad's really, truly the best Moroccan chef in the country. Um, so we're very excited about him um, and what he's up to. Uh, we just helped the Fort Point Beer team to launch their first San Francisco brick and mortar location. It's a really, really awesome restaurant. It's so cool. It's really beautiful. Um, we're really proud to represent La Cucina, which is a group of uh, primarily women and uh, and immigrant women owned restaurant businesses in the Bay Area as well. So we've we've got a ton going on there. But you know we've got a team that really focuses on all of the daily details of, of all of those clients. Um, obviously I can't be in 
three places at once? I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know. It seems like you are. And I, I'm, is your, I'm assuming your PR, you're also doing the Riddler's PR. So we have, we have a woman on the team um, at Magnum. Her name's Katie Cash. She's amazing. And she does our PR for the Riddler. Okay. So we've got somebody who's really overseeing the team yeah. for Magnum. Um, and I really think of myself at this point as like an advisor. And um, they're running, running point on the day-to-day. And then Katie does all of our pitching. But, you know, uh, on the other hand, like, you know, people from the media come into the Riddler, especially in New York, all the time. And so I just try to bridge the connection between them and her. Yeah. So how, how are you managing your time? Are you, I know there was a point where you going back and forth. Yes. A lot. I'm always going back and okay. forth. Okay. <laughs> you have yeah. good miles. Yeah. Oh, great <laughs> on the miles. Shout out to Delta. Um, yeah. Mileage is not an issue. Uh, <laughs> um, but I am currently spending most of my time in New York. Uh, we're in the midst of reviews right now, which is a really interesting process for anybody who's been a publicist or a restaurateur um, or just a reader. Um, yeah. So we just had our, our Eater review came out today, which is such a nice review. And we were really, really proud of, of that. Wonderful. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Thanks. We've got The New Yorker coming this weekend. Um, that's publishing, I think, on Saturday or Sunday. And then uh, we don't know if if... New York Magazine or the Times are going to come, so we'll see. Um, but so I'm, you know, I'm very, very, very focused on making sure that the New York team has all the resources that they need. We have an incredible management team, an incredible SOM team, incredible kitchen team, um, and so I'm, I'm really focused on New York at the moment. Um, but on the other hand, I'm really making sure that our San Francisco team has everything that they need to. Uh, we've got a rock solid leadership team in San Francisco who have been with us since the very start, um, especially our GM and beverage director. She's been with us um, yeah. for the whole time. And, you know, I, like anything, it's really, if you're going to do a bunch of these things, you've got to have a, a killer team of people who are really devoted and really excited to be doing what they're doing. I, I think a huge part of keeping people motivated is having something that, you know, everybody's part of a collective whole. We're part of, you know, we've got all of our women investors. We have a lot of women in the company who are advancing their own careers. And we're also like sell- selling and celebrating champagne to this huge audience of people, which is a really fun thing that we get to do. Yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you want to open more? I do. Okay. Yeah, I do. Do you have an idea Not where, tomorrow. where, where, um, <laughs> where location three would be? Um, I think location three would either be Washington, D.C. or Champagne. Ah. Yeah. Uh, we want to do D.C., Champagne, London, and Tokyo for sure. Um, we've had some requests <laughs> for Mexico City. We've had some L.A. requests. Um, D.C., I think, is a really interesting market because there is a huge tradition of champagne in D.C. There's, like, a lot of celebration that happens in D.C. all the time. I think there's also, like, a lot of commiserating <laughs> that happens all the time. Um, and... Um, London actually has the biggest champagne bar culture in the world. Um, oh, wow. and people in London drink more champagne per capita, um, than anywhere outside of champagne itself. Um, and there's a huge, huge community there, but we would love to do something in the heart of champagne itself, um, so that we could anchor our team and our community in the region and provide some almost like concierge services to the world for people. If you've ever traveled to champagne before, it's not the easiest place to get around. And so I think it would be really cool for us to have a home base for people who are traveling, whether from around Europe or certainly around from the United States, um, to help them to to understand and navigate the region. That's 
It's such a cool idea, and as you're saying it, I'm like not surprised that you thought it's such a cool idea. Because I, I <laughs> we'll was, see, we'll I wasn't see one thinking, day when I was in my head thinking locations. That's yeah. not what I thought you were going to yeah. say. So I think that's yeah. really it would be it would be really cool. Neat. We'll see. Yeah, Tokyo would be cool because I just want to like have Tokyo, an apartment there. I'm I'm on board with that one too. Yeah, there's a big <laughs> champagne culture in in Tokyo as well. So I'm you know we're really at the point yeah. of starting to think about what does the next five years look like, and I think. At least two other locations in the next five years. All right. We'll see. Stay tuned. I'll keep you up to date. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take another break and we'll come back and we'll play my speed round game and talk some industry news. This is All in the Industry and Heritage Radio Network. Hi, I'm Sherry Bayer, the host of All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm thrilled to let you know about HOST, Summit Plus Social, a new conference for and about the hospitality industry, taking place Monday, January 27th, 2020 at the William Vale in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York City. Based on my All in the Industry show, HOST, which stands for Hospitality Operations, Services, and Technology, will bring behind-the-scenes talent in hospitality to the forefront in a live format featuring guests from some of my most popular episodes, including Drew Niporent, Rita Jamey, Crystal Mobiani, JJ Johnson, and Jeff Gordonier. Our event will include intimate panels, one-on-one interviews, industry news discussions, curated lunch conversations, and more. Plus, of course, we will have outstanding food and drink throughout the day, including an energizing closing reception. For more information and tickets, please go to allintheindustry.com. And also, please follow us at All Industry on Instagram and Twitter. I hope you will join us in celebrating our dynamic hospitality industry. Many thanks. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jen Pelka. It's time for my speed round game. So what this is, is I'm going to name a couple of things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. So are you ready? Mm-hmm. You're always ready. <laughs> I'm trying okay. to decide chocolate or vanilla. Well, that's my <laughs> sample one. So, but yeah. I mean, if, you, if, if it's non-ice cream form chocolate, if it's ice cream, it's haagen vanilla all the way. The thing is, I've been playing this game a long time, and that's a first. And that's oh, like wow. that's, that's why I love this game because I have and I what an explanation. <laughs> okay, awesome. So here we go. Eat in or eat out. Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail, or champagne. Oh, I mean, I think we know the answer there. Champagne. Yes. Tasting menu or a la carte. A la carte, all the way. Small plates or large plates. Small plates, lots of them shared amongst lots of people. Very, very, very good. I like it. <laughs> Communal table or chef's counter? Oh, chef's counter any day. Tipping or I kind of I kind of hate a communal table. Yeah. But I love sitting at the bar. I'm I'm a I'm a chef's counter girl all the way. Like that's my favorite place to sit alone or with people too. I think it's uh it's a good it's a good spot. Yeah. This action. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oh, tipping. 
loud and clear. Traditional PR or social media? Traditional PR. Daytime flights or red eyes? Oh, daytime. And first class, whenever you can get it. (laughs) (laughs) I have a feeling you're getting it with your miles. (laughs) Yeah, obviously don't pay for it, but, you know, (laughs) when you can get the upgrades, upgrades, go for it. Cheese plate or dessert? Mm, Dessert. We hasn't done that one. Okay, the last both is that an answer? <laughs> both both counts. Um, the last one's Manhattan, Brooklyn, or San Francisco. Manhattan, Manhattan baby. Yeah, any day. Fabulous. I'll take them all though. Yeah, I love all three, and I've spent a lot of time in all three. But if I had to, if I had to pick Manhattan. All right, awesome. That was the game. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's fun. I, it's uh, it's always great to hear how people respond yeah. or what you get stuck on. So for industry news, I just picked out an article that was in Forbes talking about La List. Or I don't know if it's La, L-I-S-T-E. It's not pronounced. I think it's, Is it La Liste? I think it's La List. La List. Yes, I think so. It's French. It is. Okay. We. Oui. We. Oui, la List. The article is Best Restaurants in the World, One French, One American, Two Japanese at the top of this 2020 list. And so it's talking about this is this is a a newer uh, restaurant rating that came up. I think they said it was its fourth edition and it ranks uh, the the top restaurants in the world. And at the top, they have Guy Savoy in Paris and Le Bernardin in New York at they shared the number one rating, and there's over there's a thousand restaurants in this list. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you have any, I don't know if you thoughts on lists and well, ratings. it sounds like the way that this list is put together is that they take all of the other lists and then they put them into an algorithm and then they spit out amongst all of the lists. These are the restaurants. This is the ranking that we've come up with. We're not editorializing it. We're putting it through this. Right. This set of, uh, you know, they're, they're putting them together in some massive spreadsheet, or I'm sure it's more complicated than that. And here is what um, what's coming out. It's like these are the restaurants that are consistently at the top or consistently in the middle. Um, and I think that that is really helpful. I think that that's a super, super useful way of thinking about it as opposed to just one person or one um, ranking services recommendations. The... The thing that, I mean, I always love an editorialized list. Like, for example, I I think right now Bon Appetit is doing a fantastic job of highlighting new discoveries that probably would not end up very high on this list. Um, but, you know, Bon Appetit really knows and understands its audience, and they know what they like. They help to curate that taste, and they do an extraordinary job of, of finding restaurants that you might not have heard about otherwise. And, you know, this year, the number one restaurant in the country was a a sandwich restaurant in LA, like very controversial, but Hey, that's cool. Um, like Zagat obviously is crowdsourcing. Uh, James Beard is, you know, who knows how that really all gets put together. (laughs) Uh, I mean, there's so much controversy over the top 100 list from San Pellegrino, um, like such a boys club and everybody voting for each other. 
but also still really valuable, um, but obviously heavily indexing on fine dining. But I think it's interesting to have a list like this that that brings together all of the lists and tells you, okay, if we're looking across all of these, this yeah. is the, the average. Yeah, I agree. I think and my take on this list is, is is most similar to the world's 50 best, those mm, world yeah. – well, it's, well, it's also a, a world collection of, right. of restaurants versus right. – um, some of the others, and I did note in this article, it did also say how there was uh, 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 there weren't that many women in, oh, included. I'm, it was I you know a minority. Can't imagine that there are. Which 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 <laughs> which the yeah. the world's fifty or the hundred that yeah. list also um, the same thing. But no, I agree. I agree with you. I I don't. Um, yeah, I I think I think it's good to have resources for people to look at and get tips and and leads on, you know, what restaurants are recommended. And I, all the lists that you named, I I mean, yeah, they're, they're fabulous or great resources resources for different reasons, in, right. in a sense. Right. Um, I think it's really cool when you look at heavily editorialized lists like the Eater 38 or the Eater Heat Map, or you look at the rankings or ratings that the Infatuation does or Bon Appetit. Those are publications to me that are, like, targeting an audience more similar to myself, like young, modern, fresh, um, when it's like this intense competition amongst fine dining restaurants across the globe, uh, you know, there's a, there's a place for those rankings too. Um, it's just a lot of sameness. And, um, when you're doing this like algorithmically selected list, there's no power of the person creating list to make any change. And I guess that that's a question is, is it the responsibility of the publication to incite change or should it just simply be there for the purpose of saying, like, same, same, here are the things that we've all been celebrating for a long time. They continue to yeah. remain the same. And uh, yeah. who knows? Excellence is excellence. Yeah. Oh, good points. And, I mean, I'm happy, you know, it's nice to, to see these rec- these restaurants recognize and, and get recognition. And, and also when you're saying other more curated lists or editorial, uh, last night I happened to uh, go by um, – it was uh, Esquire's Best New Restaurants in America party last night where they, and I've had Jack Gornier on my show mm-hmm. to talk about that. And that's, you know, he, there's restaurants on it I'm familiar with. And then the, he finds these ones in other parts of the country that I haven't heard of, but then yeah. they're on my list. Yeah. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Um, I will say, um, I'm just glad to see something that's not Yelp. <laughs> I, 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 I've, got, I've got nothing better to say on that. Yeah. yeah no. Um, so great! Well, congratulations, everyone, and uh, you, yeah, you can check this out on online. And and there were some other um, there were other parts of the they what did it say? They also have a five thousand exceptional tables and fifteen thousand favorite restaurants across one hundred ninety five countries on their on their wow. app. So there's a lot of a lot of information out there yeah. you can check out. Okay, so we're going to take another break. We'll come back. We'll do my solo dining experience. We'll have the final question. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network.
Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. So this week, it's at Itame. Here's the rundown. The location, 140 Northeast 39th Street, St. Roche Market in the Design District in Miami, Florida. The concept, dishes rooted in Peruvian and Japanese flavors and traditions while celebrating local and seasonal ingredients. The chefs and owner, Fernando Papa Chang, with the help from his daughter, Valerie Chang, and son, Nando Chang. So it's a true family affair. So why did I go? So I was down in Miami, which is my hometown, for Thanksgiving, and I was curious to check out this newish market. So my experience, I went on an early afternoon, it was a weekday, and I found the markets on the second floor, and it wasn't super busy then, it had good energy though. I walked around, I wasn't really sure which of the food vendors I was going to eat at, but Itame caught my eye, and I decided to go for it, and I went over to the counter, um, I ordered, they gave me a little buzzer, which I, I, I then went over to a communal table and waited for it to buzz. Um, and I settled in and, um, the food took about 10 minutes to come out. So what did I get? Well, when I, when I ordered, I asked the woman at the counter what she recommended. She said the special ceviche that they had was really popular. So I went with that. It was called La Punta and it was a salmon ceviche with Parmesan, Leche de de Tegre, Chochio, Cancha, and onion and salsa verde. My take it was so delicious, like so delicious, I decided I had to talk about it on this show. Um, amazing flavors. The broth was was excellent. Um, I really loved it. So the ambiance. So the, the food hall, it's spacious, it's casual, it's got lots of natural light and some communal tables. I'd say it's perfect for an informal meal with friends or solo. Interesting tidbit, itame means cook in Japanese kitchen. And the spot... Uh, at this uh, St. Roche Market, it's it's um, it's the second St. Roche Market. The first one is in New Orleans, and I had actually been there a couple years ago, but this is the first location of Itame. Personal fun fact. So afterwards, I went downstairs, and across the pretty alfresco atrium is Soraya Kilgore's ice cream shop. It's called Mad Lab Creamery. And I had a delicious scoop of matcha ice cream topped with house-made chocolate marshmallows. And I highly recommend it, too. And Soraya is Brad Kilgore's um, wife and chef and partner. And I'm big fans of them as a culinary duo. Great people. The cost of my meal at Itame was $20, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes, I would. And the website's itamemiami.com. So there you go. Sounds delicious. <laughs> mm. Thanks. It was really, it really was. I mean, I, I figured it would be good, but it was like great. Well, it's always really great, great when you stumble on a place that you yeah. didn't proactively seek out and it surprises you by being yeah. really slamming. That's great. Yeah, I was happy with my decision because that's the thing when you go to, to food courts and it's like, what to get? So I recommend it. Okay, it's time for the final question. So my next guest is Russell Jackson. He's chef and owner of Subculture Dining, which is an underground supper club that had started in San Francisco. And now he has Reverence, which is a new tasting menu only restaurant in Harlem. So Jen, what would you like to ask Russell? Well, Russell, congratulations um, 
from one operator to another who's operating both uh, on both coasts, San Francisco and New York. Uh, it's a big deal, so congrats. But my question is, where should we all be eating in Harlem that we may not have heard about? Great question. I will find out. Great. <laughs> Great. So that's the show. Um, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I, what, a, what a joy. Oh, thanks. Truly. I, I, I've, loved, I've, I've loved that we've had this, this relationship or known each other for so long yeah. and seen how your career has progressed, <laughs> changed, um, and congratulations to everything that you've accomplished. And oh, I can't thank you. wait to see what's next. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll invite you to the champagne opening in Champagne. Oh, done. <laughs> done. Can't yeah. wait. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Jen. Thank you so much. My guest today has been Jen Pelka. She's the founder and CEO of The Riddler in San Francisco and New York City, and she's the founder of Magnum PR. Her websites are theriddlerbar.com and magnumpr.co, and you can find her on social media at Jen Pelka. You can find me on social media at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com, where you can go and get your tickets for our upcoming host, Summit, and Social on January 27th, 2020 in Brooklyn. And Jen is one of our speakers. I can't wait. I'm so excited. She's, she's going to be on our Branding in the Digital Age panel. So get your tickets so you could come here. More about Jen's knowledge about <laughs> branding. We didn't even get into that. Um, also, I'm going to just give myself a little self, I guess it's a self plug. I don't know. Today, uh, Total Food Service came out with their list of the 2020 top women in Metro New York food service and hospitality, and I'm on the list. Oh, and congrats. I've been on it for a few years now, and thank you. It's, it's really an honor, so thank you, Total Food Service. All of our shows are archived at heritageradionetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks always to my engineer, Jeet, for making, making this show happen, and thanks again to Jen. Now, just so you know, next week I'm going to be off, and then this show that I'm doing with Russell Jackson, I'm actually doing it in a live format on Monday, December 16th at Industry City, and it's going to be from 6 to 8 p.m. If anyone's in New York and you want to come out, to Industry City in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Again, it's December 16th. We will be there doing the live show, and it's free to register. You can go. It's an Eventbrite um, sign-up. Then, if you can't make it, we will be playing back our broadcast at my regular showtime on Wednesday, December 18th at 4 p.m. So um, stay tuned for that, and uh, thanks always for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.